Welcome to the War Room. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Okay. Orwell, The New Life. I always love titles that are provocative. I always love asking about titles. Um, when we say new life, what do we mean? Well, I suppose it's got it's got a double meaning. It's In some ways, it's a play on words, uh, because 20 years ago, I wrote another book about George Orwell called Orwell, The Life. Uh, and so I thought if I was going to write a second book, and this is a completely new thing, it's not a revised version of the of the first one. I started from scratch using all the new material I turned up. And uh, so in that sense, it's also, you know, a new version of Orwell. So in doubly in two in two senses of the of the term, it's a new, new life. Mm -hmm. So Orwell gets talked about a lot in the States. The name comes up, but but I'm not sure how many people know who he is or who he was who was he who was he uh he was born in 1903 he was born into a very conventional what in england we call um, upper middle class family uh but the family weren't quite as rich as they were prestigious if you see what i mean and he defined himself in english terms as belonging to the lower upper middle class which may not mean very much to an american uh, but it meant an awful lot to uh, a boy of, of of his age in the early 20th century because it meant that that although he had he was grandly descended i mean his i think his great 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 grandfather was was the earl of westmoreland but that didn't mean that very much of the family money had survived by the time that he was born in 1903 and so that he said that most of most of his gentility, most of his sort of class shadings were, were theoretical rather than practical. So theoretically, he belonged to the kind of family uh, where you you had servants and you, you know, you, you, you hunted and shot and all the kind of things that upper class English people did in the Edwardian era. But practically, the Blairs, his original, his, his ancestral, his, his baptismal name was Eric Arthur Blair. They didn't have a great deal of money. And so he only managed to go to Eton, uh, England's premier public school, as we call it, um, through through winning a scholarship. Had he not been incredibly clever, he would never have got that far at such a young age. So he was born into, uh, you know, born into in fairly comfortable circumstances. But that didn't mean that his life wasn't a struggle, because um, in his early 20s, he took he took the decision not to be a colonial policeman serving the British Empire uh, in the Far East, but to become a writer. And that set up all kinds of problems, given his family background and the kind of, you know, the kind of people he was descended from. His, his family were appalled when he decided he wanted to write books in his mid 20s. So it, it was a struggle, as well as in some ways being a very comfortable upbringing hmm. you said his family was appalled that's that's interesting because you know writers i guess at different periods of time have been revered and i guess in some circles appalled um is was that because it was viewed as a step down was it the type of writing he was wanting to do what was appalling about him wanting to it was it was in such sharp contrast contrast to his family background with its traditions of i suppose of imperial service you see the blairs his family uh were people who tended to work in india as civil servants you know serving their country you the, the deal was that you went out and worked in the far east for 35 years and half killed yourself you know in the heat and the dust and then you came back home on a pension but you you'd served your country so orwell's orwell's background his his family were civil servants and clergymen and and people like that there, there'd never been an artist particularly in the family so for orwell to turn around at the age of 24 
and say to his father, um, who just returned from the imperial civil service, I'm going to be a writer, was so outside the experience of anything that his father had ever conceived of in his family before that he was shocked. And he spoke to us, said that his, his son was behaving like a dilettante, like a trifler, you know, like somebody who... And it took years, really, I think, for them to be reconciled. For, for, for I mean, In fact, Orwell's... When his father died in 1939, uh, Orwell, well, he was present, Orwell said that he, he thought that his father had finally begun to appreciate what it was that he was trying to do. Uh, and approved of it, whereas previously he hadn't. So it, it was completely going against the grain of his family tradition to want to be a writer in the late 1920s. If you were to look at his early writings versus his later writings, mm -hmm. is he the same man? Does he grow? Does he change? And if so, in what ways? That's a very interesting question. And I'm afraid the only answer, the truthful answer, is that he does and he doesn't. And what I mean by that is that uh, you, you have to remember when he started writing, his first book was published in 1933. This was the age, both in Europe and in America, of, of high modernism. You know, it was the age of T.S. Eliot. It was the age of Hart Crane and Brooklyn Bridge and you know, weird stuff, uh, weird stuff that was sort of going beyond the, you know, the, the, the usual, the, the previous sort of tropes of of, of, of ordinary, mm. ordinary writing. And and yet Orwell isn't like that. Orwell's early work is very old fashioned. Uh, you know, his first book is set in Burma in the 1920s. Um, he then writes a novel about a woman living in a country rectory in a Clergyman's Daughter, his second book in 19, in 1935. These are not the kind of things that, the, 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 you know, that the hip young writers were writing in the 1930s. But having said that, um, all of his six novels, beginning with Burmese Days uh, in 1934 and going on to 1984 in uh, 1949, which is, of course, is a dystopian novel set in a, in a never-never-land, set in the future. Um, and yet they're all essentially the same book. They're all about rebellions that fail. They're all about um, frightened, ground down individuals constrained by massive external forces who decide they're going to kick against the pricks, that they're going to try and sort of break out. And it never works. And they end up in more or less the same situation that they started. So, so Winston Smith ends up at the end of 1984 admitting to himself that he'd won the victory over himself. He loved Big Brother in just the same way that the heroes and the heroine of some of his 30s novels try to break out, are frustrated, and then go back to where they were. Or in the case of Flory, in his first novel, Burmese Days, ends up killing himself. Now, now on some level, it sounds, if I followed along here, that he's almost writing about himself on some level. Like he, he wants to kind of escape this life and he can't. That, that too is a very good point, because I, one of my arguments um, uh, in, in this book and in its in, in predecessor is that Orwell... You couldn't say that his novels are not actually autobiographical, strictly speaking. I mean, his third novel, uh, Keep the Aspidistra Flying, is set in a bookshop in North London in the mid-1930s. And Orwell worked in a bookshop in London in the mid-1930s. And yet uh, the, the life that Orwell lived at that time is very different from the life that his protagonist, Gordon Comstock, lives in the novel. But at the same time, what I think Orwell does in Orwell, in all his books, is that he projects versions of himself into them, uh, you see. So in um, The Clergyman's Daughter, his second novel, which is quite sort of, it's set in different parts of, of Southeast England, 
And it's Orwell actually building bridges between the different things he'd been doing in the early 1930s before he settled down and began, you know, began to forge a career as a writer. So he's projecting his own autobiography onto the life of a woman of 28, who is his central character. So, yeah, he's he's in there, subtly disguised and sometimes not so subtly disguised, all the way through his career. And even Animal Farm, which is a book about, you know, farm farm animals who take over Farmer Jones's farm, that, that is set, as far as I can see, in the South. Oxfordshire of his childhood and brings in a number of historical and cultural references that come from his own early life in the in the in the 1910s and 20s. Now you, you made a comment a minute ago and you said mm. that what he was writing is not what the hip young writers were writing. Mm. Is his early writings are are they are they that good? Was it this that where he came from that allowed him to get an opportunity to publishing? Uh because Kindle publishing wasn't around back then. You know, you couldn't just self-publish. No, um, this is this is another interesting point, actually, because you see, Orwell Orwell went to Eton, you know, the, the top school in England at the time, and a lot of the people that he knew there or knew of almost immediately, once they were in their twenties, started. Um, forging a path to becoming writers. And they did it through personal connections. Um, you know, they did it through knowing people by having influential friends who would sponsor them, who'd publish them, who'd edit them. Orwell didn't have any of that. So when he, when he came back from, from Burma in 1927, uh, and his idea of becoming a writer was simply to go and lock himself in his bedroom at his parents' house in Southwold on the Suffolk coast, on the eastern side of England, and just sit there and write and hope that something came up. Uh, and, uh, and his idea and, you know, his idea when the people he asked for advice were generally not the kind of people who could supply it, whereas friends of exactly his age were becoming critics, were working at publishing houses, um, you know, had parents who were involved in the public, publishing industry. Orwell never made these connections. It's interesting when he was in he was in Paris at the end of the 1920s at a time when Paris was actually was completely crawling with let's say, American ex expats coming over to write. Hemingway was there at the time. It's 1927, 1928. And Orwell's friend, Cyril Connolly, who even then was establishing himself as a very a very influential uh, literary critic. I mean, he was hanging out with James Joyce. Uh, he was going to Sylvia Beecher's bookshop, whereas Orwell, living only a few streets away, was was hanging out with lowlifes and, and, and doing the research for down at what became down and out in Paris and London. So he's very much off the pace in the early 1930s. He's he's not moving in, you know, what I was what I previously said, hip young circles. Mm. And so what did he think of his his contemporaries? Well, interestingly, he uh, he didn't he didn't reconnect with them for some time. He didn't reconnect with Connolly. Connolly didn't know that he was George Orwell until uh, I think 1935, 1936. And he was also very suspicious of, of coteries of groups, you know, and affiliations and uh, keep the expedition flying, which is a novel about trying to become a writer, amongst other things, is absolutely savage about what he calls snooty young men who move from the top British universities to snug little births reviewing for newspapers and he seems to have wanted to have kind of detached himself from all of that he's, he's very much a, uh with certain qualifications he's he's pretty much a lone wolf in those early days and he doesn't have he doesn't have uh well-connected friends to kind of push his work and see him through in the way that some other writers did and also he's not making very much money i mean he's he's making virtually nothing at this point in his life in his first i mean his he the you know the advance on, I'm, I'm trying to think incomparable to that, the advance on his first book was sort of 40, 50 pounds, which even in the 1930s was about 200, 250 dollars. Nothing, nothing in terms of what really serious 
popular writers were making at that point. If he hadn't have come from the family he came from, mm. we would he been able to sustain himself then to get the fame that he got or powerful? He yeah, I mean, he had trouble. He had trouble sustaining himself as it was because mm -hmm. his family, as I say, although what we what in England is called genteel, you know, right. bourgeois, uh, didn't there wasn't very much money, and so uh, in the early nineteen thirties, before his first book is published. He's sustaining himself by teaching in dreadful private schools. Um, he's he tutors boys. He looks he looks after what we would now call special needs children. Uh, he 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 really isn't earning very much money. He's earning sort of um, two or three pounds a week in American terms, sort of fifteen dollars in the nineteen thirties. It was not it's not a lot of money. And when he ran out of money, or when he was ill, which happened quite a lot, because even at that point, his health. Uh, was was in a very bad state even in his late twenties. He would simply go home to his parents' house and try to work, and uh, all the local people uh, were very suspicious of him. They thought he was just a sponger, you know, come back to live off his parents as a freeloader, a freeloader we would say now, and uh, and so it, it took a very long time for him to establish himself at that point. When do you think he got over, to use that term, and when might he think he got over? When things started happening, when he when he started getting some sort of reputation, well, among sort of literary people, you know, in his own particular world, by the sort of mid to late 1930s, um, but he had no, he didn't have any sales. He had no real popular reputation until 1945 when Animal Farm came out. Uh, and Animal Farm went out, you know, being a satire of Soviet Russia, it did well in Britain, but it did really well in the States really, really well, book clubs and huge sales. And that was the first time that he really saw any proper money uh, in 1945. Before that, it had been pretty much hand to mouth. So in terms of becoming anything like a public figure, not until 1945, when he only had four and a half years of his life to lead. So the success when it came was very late flowering. So someone like him who struggles to make their mark um, I've heard of actors talk about this who find their big moment later on, you know, they're 40, 45, and they talk about how they view it, the fame a little bit differently maybe than someone who was a child star or a early teen mm -hmm. or a star. Mm -hmm. You say he's got a few years left. I don't know if he realizes that or not, but but he is, he's gone through the trials. Yeah. Is, there, is he the same person, not in his writings, but just in who he is? Once he kind of gets over, or does he? He's gone through the other. The other point I ought to make. I mean, you talk quite quite truly about about the the, the trials and the struggles he'd gone through. But they there are personal traumas as well. I mean, his his first wife Eileen, who'd been married in 1936, died uh, on the operating table in 1945 while he was away as a war correspondent in continental Europe. And they just adopted a small son, Richard Richard Blair, who's who's still you know still still with us at the age of 79. In fact, I'm a Appearing with him at a literary festival next month in upstate New York, which is going to well, he's he's being beamed in. You know, I'm I'm actually going to be there in person. <laughs> we're doing a joint event on Father's Day, and um, and so he, yes, he he, the struggles were personal as well as literary, and um, I think um, 
I think he, he yes he he's always he's always the same person uh, and that that the personality is a very odd personality as well I think I mean he's uh, the thing I got most interested in about him when writing about him both this time and and in the last book was what I would call the myths that he created about himself and the way he liked the visions he had of himself um his friend the English novelist Anthony Pohl once wrote in one of his novels that what people what happens to a person in their lives is not really important it's what they think happens to them or what they think that other people think and i think that's very true of orwell he goes all the way back to his school days i mean at the time he was writing 1984 1946-7 he's he's he wrote an absolutely scarifying essay about the first school that he went to, what in Britain we call a prep school called St. Cyprian's. And it's a 15,000 word howl of rage and pain and misery at the indignities to which he subjected and his idea that as a child he was a failure and he would never do anything with his life. And it was all. Uh, and you read this and you think, where did all this come from? Because no other child who went to that school or indeed to any other school like it at that time in England ever came out with anything like this. And you think, what is Orwell trying to do? What's what's he trying to project about himself in this in this essay? What sort of image of himself is he trying to project? And I, and I find this all the way through his life. He's kind of setting up situations which are going to be useful to him artistically or in the way he thinks about himself. Just to give you an example, in the very cold winter of 1946, 1947 in England, and uh, by this point, um, Orwell's son Richard was being looked after by a nanny called Susan Watson, and she remembered that at one point um, Orwell chopped up his son Richard's toys for firewood. Uh, uh, and, and he did this. She thought that he did this not because it was actually so cold and they had so little fuel that he needed to do it, but because some years later he wanted to be able to write things had got so bad in the winter of 1946 <laughs> that I had to chop up my... Do you know what I mean? So he's, he's stage managing it. He's, he's making... He's creating a situation which he can use for an artistic purpose. Now, uh, that that's quite cunning, isn't it? It's not, uh, you know, it, it's not a face, it, it, it's not a face value transaction that there's something going on in his mind to, you know, for future use. So that's what I mean about stage management and about myths too. That's great. So in other words, he doesn't, um, he doesn't believe in the sin of omission. So <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yes, I did cut it up. Yes, we did use it as firewood. Yeah, 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 yeah. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So he's he's thinking he's thinking that possibly, you know, three years later, he he might have to write a piece, an essay about what it was like in that winter. And wow. he can write. But he has to have done it. You know, he can't make up the fact he can't lie. He's, he, he, he has to have done the act, even for the, you know, even for a slightly curious reason. So a very comp psych psychologically, I find very, very complex, you know, and also not only complex, but detached. I mean, his friends always point this out that he, you know, he would wander through the world, not noticing things that ordinary people would notice uh, and appear in situations where uh, he would behave in an extraordinary way while thinking it was ordinary. I mean, I mean another anecdote that I quite often tell, which is, uh, this is during the war when he and his he and Eileen, who's still alive, were living in North London. And on one occasion, Eileen went out for the evening and uh, she left a dish of jellied eels uh, uh, on the floor for the cat and a shepherd's pie in the oven for Orwell. When she came back three, 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 uh, three hours later, Orwell had eaten the, the, the jellied eels. The cat was, you know, wondering where the food was and the shepherd's pie was burnt to a cinder in the oven. 
Mm. It hadn't occurred to him that you know <laughs> the JDs were that. That's what I mean about the, uh, the sort of the level of detachment, the kind of wandering through the world in a procession of one. You see what I mean? Yeah. So um, we have these two stories here that you just told. One of the the cutting the toys up, and the other of eating the the, the food. Mm. On the first hand, I would go. It sounds as if he's writing. You talk about this autobiographical kind of feel. It's not that, but kind of the feel to his books. And he's setting up his life as if it's a, a novel that he can mm. tell stories about. How do you try to figure out, or do you, which is a story that he did so he could tell later on, versus yeah, he's just a weird cat who ate the cat food. That's yeah, that's a good that's a good point. And I but I, I suppose what I would say to that, and it's a it's a perfectly it's a very plausible inquiry. You know, trying to the channels of which his mind worked. Mm. Um, I would say that. That's how writers' minds work a lot of the time, and that they are always looking. And I know, you know, I speak as somebody who writes novels myself. I speak the writers are always looking for bits of experience that they can cannibalize, you know, they can use for art. And uh, there's something about that absorption that makes them odd anyway, you know, you know, to begin with. So I think it's it's a combination of factors. It's to do with you know that sort that search for material. And it's to do with the kind of self sequestration that that that, in, that some literary lives, you know, end up with. So difficult to disentangle. Sure, I think. sure. No, that's helpful. Who was he writing for? You mentioned a minute ago, kind of the, the Animal Farm and what's mm. going on there. But but in, in different, he's got these different um, constituencies. Novels. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think um, who again? That's a six million dollar question. Who who do writers write for? And I, I would answer that the prime audience a writer writes for is him or herself. Uh, you know, because you write the books that you want to write because you you enjoy writing them and you think that they're, and they're doing something for you. I think. I mean, he always, he was always. Um, he said that from the mid nineteen thirties onwards, he was always. I mean, he famously said that all art is propaganda. Uh, though he admitted that not all propaganda is art. And uh, he was, you know, his his novels, his essays, everything he wrote had a political purpose. Um, the thing about the political purpose is although um, he was he was left wing and he wrote uh, an essay called The Lion and the Unicorn in 1940, just after the, the Second World War had broken out and before America joined it. So, you know, at a time when England was was very isolated, and virtually friendless. Uh, as the Nazis <clears throat> swept west, and uh, it's it's almost a kind of revolutionary book. But uh, but at the same time, he was a very small C conservative in everything else in his life, uh, and this this leads to an, an inevitable tension. You see, so I think uh, although there is this political purpose, and obviously Animal Farm is a satire of the Soviet Revolution, and 1984 is an attack on totalitarianism, where whether exercised by both left, uh, by whether by left or right. But in the end, I think his his message, you know, that that fate, the fatal idea of the, the writer's message, um, it boils down, I think, to what he wrote in his essay about Charles Dickens. And in his essay on Dickens says that, um, you know, Dickens attacks institutions. He, uh, you know, attacks the way he, all kinds of different abuses and um, indignities that his novels are, are an attack on. But in the end, Dickens's message can be boiled down to the two words behave decently. Hmm. Uh, you know, and, and all else, all is the same. Now, that's either, you know, depending on your coin of vantage, that's either um, a platitude uh, or it's the, the most serious thing you can say to anybody about anything. 
And I'd like to think it's the latter. So in the end, Orwell's, Orwell's books are about, you know, we must behave better. What they're also all about, I think, especially, you know, the last, especially Animal Farm in 1984, I think that they're about displaced religious sensibility because one of Orwell's great things is how do you get people to behave decently in a world where some, if not all of them, don't believe in an afterlife, don't believe that anybody is going to, you know, don't believe in the idea of divine punishment, don't believe. So how can we... What Orwell's really keen on is the idea, I think, of a secular morality. How can we keep Christianity or Christian principles without actually believing we're going to survive after death? And he once said that the test of a person's integrity and moral character is whether they're interested in what happens to the world after they die. Hmm. I think it's Lewis who said um, that he, he transitioned from writing kind of nonfiction uh, books to novels because they were he felt they were more persuasive. And more mm. um, would he would would he agree with that as well? Or because he, he's got he's got a blend of both there. Yeah, I mean he writes. It's interesting because he writes as, as you say. I mean Orwell is is a serious nonfiction writer too. There's Down and Out in Paris and London, the first book, which is reportage of low life on both sides of the Channel. There's the Road to Wigan Pier, which is his tour of the the distressed areas in the north of England in the 1930s. I mean it's it's the nonfiction equivalent of The Grapes of Wrath, I suppose, to be a comparable book written just two or three years afterwards. Uh, and then there's his book about the Spanish Civil War, Homage to Catalonia, published in, in 1938. But he's he's a bit, in some ways, he's a very hybrid kind of a writer. What I mean by that is that when he's writing a novel, certainly his early novels, he's always using the techniques of nonfiction. So, for example, when, when Dorothy, the heroine of a clergyman's daughter, teaches in a school uh, in West London, which Orwell had done himself, you get paragraphs and paragraphs about what it's like teaching in a school in the West of London in the 1930s, which are not really germane to the novel. And they could actually be a newspaper article that's, you know, that he smuggled in. Um, and in the same way, when he's writing nonfiction, he uses the imaginative techniques of, uh, you know, arresting metaphors and figurative language. And so you could say that he was bringing in the techniques of a novelist. So it works both ways. His his fiction is sometimes very non-fictional and his non-fiction is surprisingly poetic sometimes. And and and, and obviously in, and, in some parts of it sort of looks as like if they're invented. Obviously, he's still popular today, but for his era, was he considered mm. to be unique, different, not in his personality, in his writings, visionary, or were these ideas that were commonplace in his works have just survived because they're uh, more well-written? I think you have to see that in the context of the life and its sudden ending, uh, because you see... Um, he writes 1984. It's published in June 1949 with absolutely immense success. I mean, the American sales are absolutely stupendous. It sold 25,000 copies in the week of publication in England. But in America, it was really taken up and it was taken up as all had foreseen it would be and weaponized by the CIA, uh, you know, who actually paid for the first Hollywood film of it. Uh, and uh, it was sort of dropped in pamphlet form in, uh, you know, over parts of Soviet dominated Europe. That, that was how much it was politicized in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, but having said that, Orwell, having written the book, had published the book in June 1949 when he was seriously ill. He dies six months later and um, already the, the money is beginning to sort of is to come in. The royalty is beginning to come in American advances. And he said he he lay there in his hospital bed and said to his friends, this is fairy gold. You know, I'm never going to live to, to see it, to be able to use it. And the fact of his then dying with that sudden access of fame and celebrity and money was a huge story 
Um, and friends of his, after his funeral, sat down. His friend Malcolm Muggeridge um, sat down after his funeral and with all the obituaries on the table in front of him and said that he could, he could see how the legend of a man had suddenly been created. Dead at 46 with this huge best-selling prophetic novel, which seemed to kind of predict so much of the world situation, both then and subsequently. I mean, one of the reasons for the enduring popularity is how he seems to have uncannily foreseen and prefigured so much of what is happening in the world today. So that, I think, was largely responsible for the huge, you know, the, the fact that so much of his fame, celebrity and influence is posthumous. Yeah, it's kind of like that quote. Much from, more highly regarded now than he was when he was alive. Right. It, it's like <laughs> that quote from uh, from Batman: "You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain." So he yeah. <laughs> he, he died the he died the hero. I mean, you know, obviously at a young age, and so um, you know you never know how long it goes how it goes if you. No. You know, it's remarkable. It's remar I mean, the, the, the statistic that I always was, that you know, that that made a real impact here in England was when the week of. Um, in the week of Donald Trump's inauguration in mm. the early part of 2017, Amazon sales of 1984 rose by 950%. That was the, you know, that was the kind. Of, and it works all over the world. I mean, in the, the protests against the repressive Mugabe regime in Zimbabwe, mm. uh, Animal Farm was a kind of primary text because people thought that Mugabe was like uh, Napoleon, the head pig in Animal Farm, ruthlessly exploiting his own people for material gain. Yeah, 900% is pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> the thing I found interesting about 1984 or just that that concept um, is it is popularized today, as you mentioned. Mm. It seems, at least in the U.S., depending on who's in power, the other side likes to talk about the book. You know? mm. oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it kind of goes back and forth. And so what would Orwell say today if he were to reappear, obviously – um, some of the technology and stuff that we have, you can't understand. But but the concepts and stuff, would he say that we've missed the message? Would he say that he's he's been dead on? And then what would you say about have studying him? So I'm, I'm curious what you think he would say. And then what do you think? You well, okay. Question. First question. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, all speculation is profitless. Um, you know, it's like uh, it's like it, people used to say if Dickens was still alive, he'd be writing for TV shows. And my argument would then be Dickens was a 19th century novelist. We have no idea what he... Sure. Um, and a lot, you see, a lot of Orwell's... Orwell, because of his background, I would say, although he was a left-winger, he had lots of conventional, you know, uh, right-wing, conservative British friends. And a lot of them said, actually, you know, he was so sort of set in his ways and so traditional in his outlook that he would have ended up turning rightward, uh, you know, would have supported a lot of things that he wouldn't perhaps have supported in the 1930s. I'm not sure about that. Um, what I would say is that um, his, um, his, his ability to... Uh, be, um, uh, a scholar, an Orwell scholar called Peter Davison, who edited the 20, the great 20-volume collected works of Orwell, once wrote down a list of all the things that 1984 had foreseen. And it was absolutely uncanny what he got right, even kind of not... He'd obviously got the division of the, the world into great contending land masses and autocracies, but he got things like deforestation, you know, and climate degradation, and even a national lottery, you know, which is a thing that came in England subsequently. So even at a kind of micro level, uh, he, he seemed to have foreseen. I suppose the the, the thing that I'd... Um, that interests me, and, um, you know, were he still around, I would like to ask him or point out to him is that... 
1984 is a novel founded on surveillance technology. You know, the idea that you're being permanently spied upon, eavesdropped. And so technology is the, the absolute core of the world of, of that he's created there. But it seems to me that Orwell doesn't know very much about technology and isn't actually interested in it. It has to be there. You know, you, you never get any really understanding of how the how the um, uh, you know, how the telescreen works or how Winston Smith does his job of doctoring, you know, doctoring newspapers so that they have all the facts in them, that the, all the lies that are convenient to the regime. Uh, even when Julia and, and Julia and Winston are out in the street and she's always warning him not to say things because, you know, people can hear an eavesdrop. And I'm thinking, well, where are they then? Are there drop microphones? Where is right. the technology? And, and so what I would, it doesn't matter, you know, right. because it's just a, in terms of the book, it doesn't matter. You don't have to have this great technological backdrop. But it always interests me that, that, that here's a novel, you know, founded on a particular uh, a particular set of technological circumstances and Orwell doesn't really know anything about it uh, so I, I, I suppose I'd like to uh, but again he was he again I think in some ways it's another example of his detachment because he I mean, he was interested in science he didn't really know how it worked or you know had any sort of practical knowledge of how these things how these things operated um, when he, he in Britain he had one of the very first biros uh, that arrived in the country in 1946. It cost quite a lot of money. And Orwell thought it was a kind of miracle, you know, that you could have a pen that would keep on writing for page after page. And so but that's the kind of thing I'd like to investigate. I would have liked to investigate it a bit further were he still with us. Orwell and technology. It's interesting because you can write a great sci-fi if you get the concepts right without the technology. Exactly. Uh, you know, exactly. and then it's, it's fascinating because sci-fi is really just concepts, but it's just how much tech do you go into? Exactly, and, and I, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of sci-fi, but I've been argued that the, the the examples of it I've enjoyed most are the ones which are imaginative mm-hmm. rather than technologically complex. Mm, yeah, I think you know, the ones that actually appeal to your imagination rather than to any scientific knowledge you may have. Exactly. What's the one unanswered question about Orwell's life that you wish you could find an answer to that you just haven't been able to hunt, uh, track down? The unanswered question about Orwell's life. Um, there are lots of. This will perhaps sound rather rather odd, but I suppose I mean I've I've talked a lot about his detachment and the way in which he was obviously not like other people. You see, there's a lot in his relationships with women where he's a lot of the time he seems to be in denial about relationships. You know, he's he's writing letters to to women who were engaged to other men confidently sort of expecting that they will want to see him that they things can be uh, and so i i think the question i would probably like to ask him or the, or the unsolved question is that so many times in his life i would like to i would like to ask him what did you think you were doing mm-hmm. you know, what is your psychological explanation for the curious way in which you're behaving here I suppose, uh, you know, what sort of little inner games were you playing? Were you kidding yourself? Did you, you know, did you seriously believe that that particular woman would drop everything and come to your side? How did you how did you kind of see yourself? And I, I think the other thing I would like to ask him again, based on what we were talking about before, I'd like to say, did you really think that you were a failure? Or did you think that it was convenient to write an essay saying that you were a failure? Because of, <laughs> so I suppose I'd like I'd like to. As with any, you know, biographical subject, I would like to interrogate motive more sure. than is actually possible, given the evidence that survives for the book. So the, there's a difference when you're, when you're writing a biography. There are certain questions you can ask and explore based on the material that's available to you. But mm-hmm. you always know that there are other questions that you can't ask because there isn't even the vestige of material there to enable you to ask them. So I suppose that's what I would have, would like to go further on. 
in popular culture, when you hear people talk about Orwell, what do they get wrong? You go, man, I wish you would understand this better about him. What do they get wrong about Orwell? Well, they get an awful lot of the quotes wrong these days. Uh, I mean, <laughs> the internet, uh, there's, a, the, the, there's, a, there's a society, there's, a, there's a, an institution called the Orwell Society, which seems to spend a lot of its time on Twitter, actually prove, pointing out that most of the quotes attributed to Orwell these days, the you know, are not, uh, you know, uh, are not true. Um, I think um, we get, a lot of people get his uh, political position wrong, and they get it wrong both from the left and from the right, I think. Now, uh, getting it wrong from the right, um, I always go back, there's a famous moment in one of the quite early Simpsons episodes where um, Orwell's name comes up in conversation, you know, in the, in the Simpson household, and, and 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 Marge looks a bit sort of puzzled, and Lisa, ever precocious, says, "Oh, don't tell me, Mother, you've never heard of the author of Animal Farm," and immediately Bart says, "Grandpa says he was a commie." So, <laughs> so, so that's what I mean about misinterpretation on the right. Now, misinterpretation on the left. Um, I was very fortunate about. This is uh, this is about over twenty years ago, and before he died, my my wife, who worked in publishing uh, here in the UK, used to was uh, Sydney, the late Sydney Sheldon's UK editor. Now, Sydney Sheldon uh, in the late nineteen forties tried proposed to Orwell that he should adapt nineteen eighty four for Broadway. Uh, now it never happened, but there was an exchange of correspondence, and I was able to get Sidney Sheldon's view on this. He'd have then been in his late eight, in his in his early eighties, I suppose. It wasn't long before he died, and, and Sheldon wrote to Orwell in nineteen thirty nine. And of course, the, the most of the American pundits who reviewed nineteen eighty four thought that it was simply anti Soviet. It was an attack on Stalin. Big Brother was Stalin. It was as simple as that. And I've seen paperback jackets, the first American paperback jacket of 1984, the poster of Big Brother, it's Stalin. I mean, it looks so like him that it's not true. Uh, so Sidney Sheldon wrote to Orwell and said, I think it, I agree that, you know, obviously it's a satire of, of, of Soviet society, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, its target is totalitarianism generally whether from the left or from the right. And Orwell wrote back and said, I absolutely agree, and you're quite right, but I can see what the Americans are going to use this book for. And mm. that's that effectively is what happened. As I say, it was weaponized by, by the CIA in the 50s. And I think to a certain extent, it, its message was skewed. So, so that that's probably what the what one of the, those are two of the things I think that we get wrong. Uh, you know, the right thinks that he's too left wing, and the, the left probably thinks that he's too right wing. So <laughs> we need a position yeah. somewhere between. Well, it's interesting because I'm reminded of the Hong Kong protest a few years ago, and yeah. people in the U.S. on the right would be like, man, these people in Hong Kong, they want a liberal democracy. And relative to what they have in China and they're afraid of moving into Hong Kong, they, they do. However, in America, they'd probably be on the far left side of the spectrum based upon if you kind of see them talking and so it's kind of interesting oh, yeah, no no that's right no those, those sort of that that sort of relativism is very interesting and very important and can sometimes get lost sight of you know when, when you when you have a manichaean division of right left good you know good uh -huh. bad i agree with you those kind of distinctions can sometimes be you know be be lost yeah and so it's just it's it's and i think that um to your point about weaponizing, that's the real danger is, is does Orwell, does he have a point that we think he's right on, regardless of who he's attacking? And that's, that's a secondary issue. Is the, the belief, is the thesis something that we think is right? If so, 
then you can debate the context and all all that other mm-hmm. stuff. But, you, you, but we, but I think the the frustration on these conversations in broader culture is um, they're cherry picked to use, like I said, the right will use it against the left, the left against exactly. the right. I, I think Orwell, Orwell's search for what, one one of the things I think is so remarkable about Orwell is is this search for truth which involves trying to see other people's positions, even if you don't agree with them. I mean, he fought against Franco on the, you know, on the Republican side in Spain in 1937. And at one point, he was shot through the throat by a fascist sniper, very nearly died. The bullet missed his carotid artery by a few millimeters. Uh, and yet somehow he managed to remain relatively objective about all of this. And after the war, he would say that, uh, that he didn't believe that there was a case for fascism, but there, he thought that certain individual fascists had a case. He also <laughs> said that who you fought for in Spain in the 1937, in the 1930s, late 1930s, largely depended on which part of the country you lived in. Mm. So in other words, for a lot of people, it wasn't a huge ideological thing. It was a matter of simple geography. Um, and, you know, for a, for a partisan, for someone who'd actually fought on the anti-Franco side and almost died to say that is remarkably objective, I think, mm. uh, and not something that a great many ex-Spanish Civil War volunteers would have said. Okay. All right. We are going to link to the book in the show notes. I'll also, we'll link to your website as well. Any upcoming projects or things we can be on the lookout for? Well, oh, I'm always on the go. I've got uh, I've got another little book about Orwell coming out next year that Yale University Press are doing, which is about it's a kind of reader's guide, but it's an it's it, it's kind of Orwell puzzles at the same time. One of them being the technology thing we were just talking about. You know, what what is it with Orwell and technology? Uh, just sort of interesting little questions like what does he have against pigs? You know, this Orwell, <laughs> the great Orwell's a huge animal lover and a friend to nature, but for some reason he can't stand pigs and he makes them the villains of Animal Farm. So why is that? So that's coming out next year. I'm just putting the finishing touches to that uh, at the moment. Yeah, so I'm they're always sort of projects on the boil, but um, at the moment I'm I'm busy running around uh, promoting promoting this book, which is great. And uh, okay, well, we look forward to seeing your next book and hopefully get you back on. Thank you so much great. for your time today. Thank you very much for your questions, which I've enjoyed.